This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversation. Tonight is part of an ongoing series about trauma, and we're going to be focusing tonight on group therapy for trauma. My guest is Dr. Judy Herman. Judy is clinical professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of training at the Victims of Violence Program at at the Cambridge Health Alliance. Judy's also the author of three books about trauma. The first was called Father-Daughter Incest, the second, Trauma and Recovery, and her third book, which is actually coming out in the beginning, January or February of 2011, is called The Trauma Recovery Group, A Guide for Practitioners. Welcome to Safe Space, Judy. Thank you so much for having me. It's really an honor, I want to say on a more personal note, that I was a trainee. I did my residency at Cambridge Hospital where Judy was a professor and uh, had a tremendous influence on me, and I'm, I'm really grateful and delighted to, to have you as my guest. So I want to start out by um, actually referencing a talk that I heard you give maybe 15 years ago when I was in training in which you said that one of the most important determinants of whether a person will go on to get post-traumatic stress disorder after some kind of traumatic experience was how they were received by their community after the, after the fact. And I'd love to hear you say more about why that's so important. Well, I think trauma, uh, by its very nature, is something that isolates people and sets them apart. It's, um, a, first of all, such a terrifying experience. It makes people speechless with terror. But it's almost always also a humiliating and shaming experience. Um, And we see that um, whether you're talking about trauma in the political sphere where torturers, um, as we saw with Abu Ghraib, delight in humiliating their victims, um, or whether it's uh, sexual or domestic violence where, again, oftentimes the, the whole point of the, um, the violence is to subordinate and humiliate the victim. Uh, so people feel cut off from others in the aftermath of trauma. They feel disgusted, disgusting, like uh, as though no one could ever possibly understand or accept them. Mm. And so given that, it sounds like that's sort of part of why reconnecting with people, therefore, is so essential. So important. And I think early on, for example, um, Ann Burgess, who was one of the very early researchers on uh, sexual assault, uh, did a follow-up study. She saw every rape victim that came through the Boston City Hospital emergency room in a year. And then she followed them up for four years, and she looked at who recovered well. And the people who had really done the best were people who um, had were lucky, either were lucky enough to have supportive uh, family members, partners, spouses who, who rallied to their support, or if they didn't, they were the kind of uh, sort of outgoing, affiliative people who kept trying mm. and kept uh, reaching out until they finally found somebody who was supportive and 
and kind. Uh, so uh, having a supportive person seemed to be key. And the other important thing seemed to be taking action. So that it, didn't, it wasn't just a matter of uh, who was in the person's environment. The person couldn't have any control over that. But the person could have control about who she told and who she reached out to and uh, what kind of actions she took. And taking actions seemed to be really, really important. And when you say taking action, that seems like a very broad thing. I mean, right now I'm hearing it in terms of reaching out till you get a supportive hearer, listener. But I know that so much of your work has also been about looking at how after a terrible trauma, eventually in the course of healing, people can take action to try to address the cause of what happened to them. Is that what you mean also? Well, yes. Um, I, uh, for example, in Ann Burgess's study, she, she found that that was actually kind of a separate category, a separate variable, if you will. People, it didn't really matter what kind of action it was that the, that the survivor took. Uh, some people told, you know, made a complaint to the police, uh, a lot, a lot more didn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people went to court. A lot didn't. Uh, but people did things like just changing the locks on their their doors, or uh, moving in with uh, a roommate, or getting a dog, or taking a self defense class. Something that made them feel that though they'd been helpless in the moment, they weren't helpless anymore and they could do something to make their environment safer. I see. So it's really very broad. Anything that makes you feel less helpless is good. Yeah. 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 Okay, so so if we come back to the first part then about the the key importance of having a supportive other, Mm -hmm. no matter how hard you have to work to get that, how, how do you understand what makes it so hard to hear trauma stories? I mean, why is it that people do have to keep looking and looking till they can find a good listener? Um, tell me about the difficulty of hearing trauma stories or, you know, the other side of that equation. Well, uh, I think it's frightening for us to hear the, the, the particulars, the horrors of what one one human being is capable of doing to another human being. It's, um, it's frightening. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, one of the most natural reactions, I think, is to think about all the ways that the victim is different from us. So yes. that, because if the victim is different, then it couldn't happen to me. Yes. If she did something that, you know, brought this on herself, and if she, you know, if she was dressed that, well, I would never dress that way, or I would never go to a party and get drunk, or I would never walk in that neighborhood, or uh, that kind of thing. Uh, If we can sort of set ourselves apart from the victim and find something... uh, to uh, ensure that that we're distant from the victim, then maybe we're safe. 
and maybe our sort of illusion of safety doesn't have to be shattered by hearing these horrible details. Um, so that's part of it. The other thing is that for many of these crimes uh, of vi- interpersonal violence, as I say, there is a there is an intention to humiliate the victim and set the victim apart and and uh, ostracize, if you will, make the victim contaminated uh. Uh, and disgusting, so that. Um, uh, you know, once again, we 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 recoil at you know if, uh, for example, in uh, with gang rape, it's not unusual for the sort of the ceremony, if you will, of a, of pulling a train or the gang rape to end up with everybody urinating on the victim. Um, well, you know that I. I and don't bring this up to shock you so much as to say the details are disgusting. And we do, you know, if the victim smells bad, if the victim is dirty, uh, we don't want to go near that person. Right. And that's true of combat, too, by the way. I, um, uh, I remember one author's writing about combat, I think it was I think it was Tim O'Brien talking about um, that the first thing if you if you really wanted to hear the truth about combat, the first thing you'd have to hear about is shit, all the different varieties of it and um, all the ways that that combat veterans get dirty and filthy and and really feel defiled. Yes, right. So the language starts to become just it. The language reflects how awful it really was. Yeah, and people yeah. recoil from that. Yeah, yeah. I wonder too if also, particularly with people who love the survivor, the victim, mm-hmm. if there's also this terrible feeling of powerlessness. Yes, that's very hard to bear. Yes, yes. I mean, it's hard for for bystanders to feel. Help, so helpless, and that, and and often guilty themselves. Well, if I'd only done this, or if I'd only done that, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And and um, so there's a kind of a torment that the the bystander who cares about the victim uh, experiences as well. Yes. So I want to shift now because you, you know, I know that you you're just coming out with this book on group treatment, and I know you've been working with group therapy for trauma for many years. Um, and it's all about, in some ways, creating a community of people for each member of the group. And tell me a little bit about how you, how you bring what we've just talked about into how you shape a group in order for it to be helpful. Well, first of all, I should say that, that there are different kinds of groups. Um, and the way you would run a group for people who are in early recovery might look a little different from how you would um, run a group for people who are ready to really grapple with the with the past and and kind of get into the details and the feelings about what really happened. Um, so, uh, but in in either case, 
what you're trying to do is create, um, shall we say, a safe space, um, mm-hmm. one in which all the group members have this experience in common, uh, and all of them are in some ways prepared to listen to one another and to accord um, one another, well, to listen empathically, I guess one would say, to one another. Listen with compassion and with curiosity and with um, kind of an open mind. Mm -hmm. So we... Uh, and and we set the kind of ground rules about um, in, in these groups that this is not the kind of group in which you're kind of going to fight it out about who gets airtime, uh-huh. for example. Right. Uh, everybody's going to get a turn. These group there's a kind of a rule of fairness. Yeah. The the time is going to be shared. The group leaders make sure of that. Um, and uh, for early recovery groups, we often have topics. What is post-traumatic stress? Or yes. uh, ang- what about anger? What about shame? Uh, what about isolation? Uh, and we and and people go around and they talk about what how they have experienced uh, these you know, how shame has come into their lives or how they've been isolated. And then, but within the context of the group, they're no longer feeling that isolation. They're feeling that other people get it. Right. And so when you say that you you make sure in creating a safe space that they're willing and able to listen to each other with compassion, do you screen the people that can be in a group? We do, to some degree. I think, um, depending on the kind of group it is, we're sort of more or less strict about screening. For an early recovery group, for example, um, we would accept people who are whose recovery is much more fragile and uh, who may be actively drinking or that sort of thing for... Uh, or who might be living in a situation where they are you know, still at risk from a perpetrator. Uh, for another, for, uh, for a, a trauma-focused group, we would want people to really be safe and uh, have their self-care be well-established in their, in their personal lives. Right. So... Um, some degree of sobriety, for example, if they've had a substance abuse problem. Uh-huh. Um, but otherwise, we're not, we're, it's pretty much come one, come all. And, um, and in terms of how to uh, listen empathically to another person, we, we can model that in the group. We teach that in the group. Um, uh-huh. The only thing that we would screen for ahead of time is we would really just ask the person directly, do you think you can tolerate hearing other people's stories? Right. I mean, I can imagine it's very hard. If it's hard for anyone to hear a story of trauma, Mm -hmm. I can imagine it could be quite triggering, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, do you have a strategy for handling uh, 
your symptoms if they get transiently worse, uh-huh. if you have more more nightmares or more flashbacks or that sort of thing. Um, and so when you teach someone to give empathic feedback, I mean, so if, how, if you were going to teach me right now, briefly, okay. how would you teach me to give empathic feedback? Well, for example, if I, if I had just finished my sharing time and I had just told, you know, a detail about um, a, my relationship with my abuser, for example let's say, a a date rape, and let's say that actually I went out with him again Uh after the rape happened, you know. And and I'm sharing this with an enormous shame. You know, this this really proves that I asked for it, right? Um, And... um, and you're going to answer by saying what so you're going to so before you teach me you're going to see what i would say naturally yeah okay yeah. well i mean my instant reaction would be to say i'm guessing you went out with him again for some very big re- for good reason but you know i'd love to hear i mean i would try not to be shaming i would hear how shamed she was yeah, yeah. Well, now, see, I don't need to teach you. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but, <in> the- <laughs> but, in, but if, in fact, you answered, well... What were well, you thinking? You know, or something yeah, like yeah. that. <laughs> well, <laughs> why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> we say, well, um, I say, well, could you... Could you ask that same? I mean, you have, you're right to be curious and interested, but do you think you could ask that same question, but with a different tone of voice? Uh-huh. Because the tone of voice you used sounds kind of shaming. At least it did to me. And I think if if you heard that tone of voice, you'd probably feel kind of criticized. Yeah. Um, so that's what we do. So you teach it live in the moment live. as opposed to kind of having like principles that you lay out in advance. No, 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 no. It has to be live. I mean, <laughs> and what typically happens is somebody shares some awful thing that she did that or he did. And, and then the next group member says, oh, that happened to me too. And I, and let me tell you about what my story. Yeah. And that what we have to do then is to redirect the feedback and say, you know, um, I think it's very important that you understand because you had a similar experience. And maybe you could, since this happened to you too, let's concentrate on the person who's been sharing. It's, it's, it's his time, sharing time, or her sharing time. Can you can you tell this person how that makes you feel toward him or her? Yeah. So you're coaching people how yeah. to give the kind yeah. of response that that the speaker really needs. Yeah. 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 So, and they get it. They get it after. I mean, some people get it more, more naturally than others. But once they've seen what a difference it makes. To have people get that feedback, and and then we also include time for people to actually 
receive the feedback and take it in because that's the other part that happens. Yeah, so tell me about that part. Well, you know, everybody comes to the group thinking either feeling that this is going to be another uh, experience of being ostracized and humiliated. Everyone else is going to belong, but they won't belong, either because their trauma is too awful or because their trauma is not awful enough and it's trivial and it doesn't compare. Uh-huh, right? right. So everybody's coming in with that expectation. Uh-huh. And then once they do receive empathic feedback, it's so... It's it's like water in the desert, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but still, they'll... Uh, and, and, you know, it's so different getting it from peers. Because if you get it from a therapist... You know, you can always just think, well, they're paid to you right. know, be nice. Right. Um, and But when you get it from peers, it has that, it, it, it has that credibility to it. Mm-hmm. And also when you give it, you discover that you're not just there to receive. You're, you have something to offer. And that is tremendously, um, it builds self-esteem, it, it it makes uh it it just makes for a a situation where shame kind of melts hmm. uh and people can laugh together and toward the end of some of these groups people are crying but they're laughing uproariously hmm. we had we had a group once for uh these were incest survivors and they bonded initially around their their fear, their terror, and and their shame. And toward the end, they were sharing their really, really shameful things, which were their revenge fantasies. Yes. Um, which they felt, you know, those felt like kind of kind of an totally ego alien um, excuse. The the. Right, so unlike themselves, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> so unlike exactly as though that the the kind of viciousness and cruelty of the perpetrator had been kind mm. of implanted in them, and now they were carrying it around in themselves. Mm. You know, um, and yes. it had kind of taken them over. So one person sort of started very cautiously sharing a um, a revenge fantasy. And then the next person sort of said, well, gee, that seems kind of mild. I sort of <laughs> right. like to, you know. And then yep. the ne- <laughs> by the end, they had sort of all piled on yes. with uh, other outrageous things that they thought of doing to per- their yes. perpetrators. And, um, you know, whereas this would have been horrifying at the beginning of the group, toward the end of the group, you know, they were just. Everybody was just. It was. It was an uproar. People yes. were laughing uproariously, laughing till. Late. And one woman said, "I never had that. I. I always heard this experience. I laughed till I cried. Mm. But I never knew there was such a thing. That's so great. And, and that's how shame disappears. It's in this shared laughter where people can make eye contact, where they can know that their most shameful thoughts and fantasies 
are, in fact, kind of not only acceptable, but kind of funny. And it's silly. really great. <laughs> it's really great. You know, one of the things that struck me when you said earlier that one of the legacies of trauma is this feeling of being contaminated. Mm-hmm. As if, you know, I hear people use the word damaged goods mm-hmm. a lot. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, does that, are there other things that you know of that help people really feel freer of that idea of contamination, that there's something about them that is marked? Mm. It's, well, it, it's often a very deep experience. You know, that sense of being defiled, of being... And sometimes with with childhood abuse survivors, for example, there's that sense of, um, you know, you shouldn't have been born. Often the verbal abuse that goes with it is, you know, you, uh, you should never have been born. You're disgusting. You're dirty. You're stupid. You're ugly that kind of thing. Um, And that really gets, there's a kind of an inner voice that says those things to the person. Um, And with combat, you, um, you know, particularly people who have witnessed atrocities or participated in atrocities, um, or, you know, they've seen children killed, They've they've seen things that they feel like they cannot tell civilians yes. because the civilians would be horrified. And of course, you know some some cultures have kind of cleansing ceremonies that they when they bring soldiers back from war they actually go through some sort of ritual. Boy, I wish we had that. Um, so, but I, but once again, it's it's something that's done in community. I, it's very hard to heal that sense of contamination when people are isolated. Yes, I mean that seems to be such the powerful thing about using a group mm-hmm. at, as part of recovery. Um, we're going to have to stop in just a minute. So I want to ask you one last question, which is, you said to me when we were talking about this in advance that the the idea is that people in the group move toward realizing a goal, towards mm-hmm. taking action. And I know in some of your writing you talk about sort of the, f- the f- not the final, but a part of healing is taking more social or political action to address, you know, whatever the violation is that happened to you. And I'd love to hear, is that what you mean by moving toward a goal? And tell me about the impact of that on recovery. Well, I think you're talking about two separate things. One is uh, that in this model of the trauma recovery group, which we are just publishing, and by the way, I should I should mention that the lead author in this latest book is uh, Michaela Mendelssohn, not me. Okay. Um, just to to give honor to uh, and credit where it's due, Great. Michaela was a postdoc with us and then a research coordinator. Great. Um, and also to allow me to kind of be prideful and, and <laughs> fail a little bit, as the expression goes. But you're talking about two separate things. One is what Robert Lifton would call a survivor mission. And that's really some, something that not all survivors uh, achieve. But when they do, I think it's very powerful. And, and that is to sort of, when people 
transform what happened to them by in some ways making it a gift to others when they'll say things like I realize that this wasn't just about me it's a huge social problem it happens to a lot of people and I wanted to do something because I feel like if I could prevent this from happening from what to to yes. one other person or if I could help one other person that this happened to then it wouldn't all have been in vain so that's when people uh, get to that place, it's, uh, I think, a, a wonderful aid to recovery. Uh-huh. Uh, not everybody does get to that place, and you can't sort of impose it no. on people. Um, and I think it's also not something to come to early in recovery when you really do need to focus just on yourself and your self-care yes. and your safety. Judy, we are going to have to stop. I know. Oh, I, I think what you were going to say is the second thing was the taking action maybe that we talked about in the beginning. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. On that note, we're going to have to stop. I want to say again that the book that you've just published, I know you're the second author, the first author being Michaela Mendelssohn and four other authors, is the Trauma Recovery Group, A Guide for Practitioners, will be out in February. Uh, Judy, thank you so much for being my guest. It was really a pleasure to have you. A pleasure on my part as well. If you'd like to uh, listen to this show again or email it to someone else, please go to the website, which is www.safespaceradio.com. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison, and my thanks tonight to Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music, and Neil McKenty for his consultation. Here's Money Talks. Thank you.